Hello and welcome to another episode of the Two Medics podcast. My name is Imran Lasker. I'm a consultant radiologist. And hi, I'm Therusha Gunawardner. I'm a cardiology registrar, sub-specialising in intervention. You may have noticed my voice. It's back, but not quite back. I don't know. Can you hear that? It's not the way it used to be. Something's no. going on with it still, yeah. I was telling you, Therusha, at one point, I couldn't actually talk at all. Like, at all. And I was still trying to report, and I was actually whispering into the mic oh, to God. get it. Yeah. What else was I going to do? I had work to do. I had any to. comments? About my voice. Yeah, being like... Well, actually, no, because it, you talk into it and then it just types it. It just records, like, yeah. It does the recording and stuff. So actually, it, it was fine, but it was just... Yeah, I think Ra my, Rabia walked in a few times. Are you whispering? I was like, that's because I have no voice, but I still have to work. <laughs> and she was like, this is very sad, isn't it? Like, yeah, <laughs> it is a bit, isn't it? <laughs> I couldn't stop. But yeah, it was, it was tough, man. I suddenly realized that, man, this voice is... This is the moneymaker. Just ensure this voice. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder how much my me saying normal is actually worth these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair normal, 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 authorized. Yeah, how you been through, Sean? Yeah, I've been all right. <laughs> I've been okay. I've been trying to, like, with the new year and stuff, just get back into eating healthy and mm. going to the gym. It's been really hard to start that because there's just things that keep coming up in the way, you know, about holidays. And... <laughs> just food. Oh, yeah, food's food, gone yeah. in the way. Oops. Oh, yeah, still yeah. mince pies and all stuff still to eat. Yeah. Starting tomorrow. <laughs> Tomorrow. But I'm doing the London Marathon this year. So my training has started. I ran 8K yesterday, which is okay. And mm. next week I'm doing 10K. I'm like, oh God, the whole extra 2K, the last 8K was horrible. I'm doing 1K is enough for me, mate. I don't know yeah. how you're doing this. So what I've decided with, so normally when I run, I listen to music, like I've got my mm. kind of workout playlist. And mm. it's just not enough anymore. Because like when you're running for, for ages, you just get, I don't know, I'm just skipping tracks and stuff. And so I thought, oh, this time around, I'll listen to an audiobook. And I was like, I'm not sure if the tempo is going to be all right. But actually, when it's when it's dull, running is dull and repetitive, the, it actually wasn't that bad. And I don't know why I'd never really thought about doing it before. I wonder, like, if there are many people out there who listen to audiobooks whilst running it. I feel it, the idea of it seems a bit wrong. I feel like I should be listening to something fast-paced to keep me going. But actually, it, doesn't, it didn't really make that much of a difference. And I think I like, took stuff in. Well, that's it's a good quite way. a good hack, no? That's quite, it sounds like a decent hack that you got there. Yeah, the thing is that I find it, like last year, I was looking at the number of books I'd read. I say read in inverted comments because mm. they're mainly audio books. And I got through about, I think, close to 50 books. And wow, nice. that's for my commute. That's because my commute is so long. And But then I was in Waterstone today with Nils, and I was just thinking to myself, like, there's so much stuff out there that I'd mm. like to read, that I'd just like to know. Like mm. these days, like, um, with all the stuff that's going on in the world, like with economics or even just understanding like history and stuff, or there's just so much interesting stuff out there. And I was just walking through Waterstones and looking at all these books and being like, oh my God, like I could spend a lifetime just in this, say in this store with all the books that are there at the moment and I wouldn't be able to read everything. Like you being um, like Belle from We're Beating the Beast where the beast <laughs> opens the library. Look! <laughs> I mean, that's genuinely the only time I can ever get competitive. That's your good. present. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude. Like, I, I've been uh, reading this book, actually. I don't know where they went into this kind of stuff called Some Days Today. And do you remember that book we read called Storyworthy about the guy? Oh, He's yeah. written this book. Okay. And he talks a lot about, again, about productivity. And I guess I just listened to it because it was around. And uh, it is interesting in that he does talk a lot about making use of every single minute almost or like coupling jobs together. And I started taking that into consideration. For example, something silly like getting my coffee ready while his kettle's going or whatever. I'll empty the dishwasher. So that's what he talks about and how to actually like couple jobs together when you've got like a <laughs> you certain do moment. That anyway. do something. No, normally I sit there on my phone. 
No you know, way. Wait, yeah, I just don't. I just wait around. But then I started to try and think about how to make use of like dead time. Trying so, to, so like nowadays, actually, when I'm at work, actually, when I say nowadays, over the last couple of weeks, when I'm at work, I'll take my, I'll carry my laptop around. So then when I, that means when I'm in between things or someone hasn't turned up, I'll open the laptop, write a few lines or whatever I'm up to, or send a few emails or write, make a few lecture slides. And then by the end of the day, quite a lot has been done. You're like, wow, this has this been pretty good. Using the time that otherwise I'd be faffing on Twitter or something. It's been interesting. And if anyone's interested in that book, he did a very good book called Storyworthy, which I yeah, learned a lot good. from. And then now he's done this one where he talks about this. But he's a bit extreme, by the way. Because one of the things he keeps talking about is, ask your 100-year-old self, would you be okay with doing this? And I've mentioned it to Robbie, and she goes, do you really want to live like that, where you're constantly asking yourself, would your 100-year-old self be okay with what you're about to do? And then I thought, well, actually, maybe that's maybe it does seem a bit extreme, but maybe that's not a terrible question to ask like every, yeah. about everything. Like, do I really want to watch Lord of the Rings again? Because that's like another nine hours of my life gone. Does 100-year-old self want to see it nine, nine hours and lose those nine hours, or should I do something yeah. else? You know what I mean? But then that's when it gets a bit extreme. Okay, yeah. I don't know. So like yeah, 100-year-old you would be like, you should be in the gym or something. Or yeah, we just make use teeth. of those few seconds. Yeah, just something, like something. Yeah. He's so extreme that I think when he's brushing his teeth, he'll like balance on one foot and then the next foot. Yeah, I did that. that like, Calf raises. Oh, really? Really? Okay, well, there you go. So you, maybe you are more like him than you realize. So worth reading that book if you're interested. But, extreme. Um, yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. You, I'm definitely not great at accomplishing loads of tasks and stuff. There are some things that I feel like I have to, like, for example, the running and listening to an audio book. I feel like there's gaming the time. So, for example, mm. when I'm getting ready in the morning and as the coffee machine's like pouring stuff, like I'll, I want a few things to be on at the same time, like doing it. But um, I'm definitely not, I'm, it's not in a kind of really productive way in my life, like making the coffee and heating the car up and getting my bag together. I want it mm. to be in the things that I can't have, I don't have time over the control over the time of. Mm. Try to do other things in that time. That's I think that's like a, I'm only starting being like that now. Almost. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. It's an interesting. Yeah, I know what you mean. So today yeah. is like a kind of auspicious day, isn't it? So the ballot, the mm. BMA ballots, like going out. That's yeah. something that we. Well, yeah. Yeah. There was a thread this week that I really recommend checking out because what Bethan, so you might have heard of her, Bethan John at Miss MS yeah. Bethan J. She's collated a whole load of tweets. She did it on the 2nd of January, if you want to look it up. And the first thread was at 9 29 in the evening. And mm. uh, she's basically put together loads and loads of different accounts of why the nhs is you know, like people would say and we were joking about this i think last week or maybe the week before mm. about how we say it's a breaking point and now most people are like actually now it's just broken with i see like loads of emails now which are like a critical incident or whatever and mm. the kind of areas where patients are just in ambulances just being triaged in ambulances and not having anywhere to mm. put them and stuff and so like amongst the thread I think like the kind of one of the headlines was this statement from the president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. He said that up to 500 people a week are now dying because of the delay. This is an astonishing number, don't you think? It's because crazy, I was thinking about this number and I was thinking to myself, is there anything else where 500 people a week could be dying that anyone would find acceptable? Yeah. Can you think of it? Like if we said, I remember knife crime, exactly. Or knife crime was a big deal for a while. I don't know whether it's to have a look at the statistics, but knife crime was something that was coming up a lot. And then uh, it was coming up in the news. And let's say we found out that knife crime was causing 500 deaths a week. Man, there'll be an uproar. Or yeah. let's say we're being attacked by something or someone or some sort of entity and 500 people a week were dying because of it. How much of an uproar would there be? Like you'd be, people would be doing everything under the sun 
to make sure that this was not happening anymore. But I don't know whether it, is, it doesn't fit the general rhetoric of what people are trying to achieve, that this is just not a thing. Like people are just walking around like this is, yeah, happens. 500, 500 people dying a week. Avoidable, no? Any other thing that, you know, car crashes, food poisoning, anything that could cause that would be a big uproar. You'd do something. But why is it with the NHS that, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to strike the same kind of chord as anything else that could take those kind of people out. It's horrible situation horrible no it's interesting isn't it but in the mean mm. the thing that obviously is grabbing media attention are the strikes because i guess it's just everywhere isn't it and all different types of in the, the postal strike and train strike and the nursing strike so that seems to be in the public conscience. but it's amazing that like every time you read the stuff about this they're like extremists of this group, oh, yeah. extremists. Oh, really? So you're talking about extremists of the what? The train drivers, extremists of the ambulance, yeah. <laughs> the paramedics, extremists of the nurses, extremists of the doctors, extremists of the post. So somehow oh, everyone's become extreme. Yeah, everyone's something. become extreme except you. So is that one of the situations where if everyone's annoying? Maybe you're the one that's annoying. You know what I mean? Like that sort of situation. Like at what point do we just say, yeah, I don't know, man. Maybe everyone else has got a point here. If everyone in the yeah. room is getting upset with you. And now everyone else is extreme. Maybe you're the one that's doing something that's a little bit off. And I like, I love the, some, of the, some of the headlines that have come out. And especially, I think I just tweeted one now. Did you see this? Where they've asked Rishi Sunak straight up, do you have a private, do you have a private GP? What do you think? What do you think? Genuinely, Sarusha, what do you think? Do you think he's I mean, the kind of person to turn up to the NHS and use their services? Because he can't, I can't be. I can't quite he picture him. doesn't notice a problem. Can you picture him in the NHS waiting room, just sat there, just <laughs> looking through like an old, like magazine, like old Reader's Digest from like 2016, <laughs> like flicking through it, like whilst he's waiting, like in the waiting room. And he's like a box of like children's toys that are all broken with parts missing, like in the corner. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just can't exactly. picture me. I can't see It's it. not going to happen. It's not going to yeah. happen. And this is what I said before. Like, I don't think these people are making decisions that affect their lives. They can't be because they wouldn't do that. If he knew how hard it is to get a GP point when you're unwell, how long it takes to go to A&E and wait in there, or how long it takes an ambulance to arrive, then surely you do something about it. And that's because he himself does not rely... I'm speculating. So, Rishi, if you do come after me, fair enough, like, I probably deserve it. But I'm speculating. <laughs> <laughs> you don't rely on any of the services that you're making big decisions on. None of them. And no one that you're associated with, no one that you hang around with, no mm. one that you remotely know or care about is dependent on those services that you're making big decisions about. And that's why it's so easy for someone like yourself to talk about someone surviving on £18,000 a year, to, to do what you've done to the A&E, to do what you've done to all of these things. I just, I just find it a little bit... I love when those questions come up and how much he squirms and tries yeah. to get out of it. And he's not is even that, doing a particularly good job of it, squirming out of it. Yeah. Yes, is that the key? Because you get people who are like, oh, we don't care about what he uses because in actual fact if he's using private services then that's helpful to the nhs but mm. that's like almost i feel like there, there's a point to that that makes sense but I, what you're talking about is investment and it is like a, a moral investment in the, like an, an ability to empathize with the process this is something it's much easier to make it seem like an ab talk about i saw there was a kind of email I think it was from like a Tory MP, what's his name, Philip someone. And he was like saying, oh, like the main, the government don't control the NHS. The problem with the NHS, that NHS managers, a lot of whom are useless, is what he said in this email. And I'm being like, wow, like what a thing to say, like what a thing to say, like how's that? That's like, a, like it's, and it's easy to make pot shots and stuff like that if that's something that you're just so far removed from the process that you know, mm. you just make up rubbish. 
Yeah, it's a strange set of affairs. Like the very people that are making decisions don't rely on these things. So they're so easy for them to be like, oh. And that's the thing like as well, wasn't it on that interview? He was saying something like, they said, oh, can you live on 18,000 pounds a year? And then he was a bit, he's kind of avoid the subject. We need to give him a sense of purpose or something like this. And you say, oh, yeah. stop talking about this. Just stop. I don't want to hear about anything else. Just the conversation straightforward. Pay people. That's yeah, all it yeah, is. Yeah. And you, you don't need appreciation in a capitalist society and all the rest of it. The way you appreciate and reward people for the work they do is by paying them. Yeah. That's it. There's nothing I mean, else. Just purely mm. because I'm obviously like a really pedantic person, just like okay. on a purely pedantic basis, how annoying it is to watch like an interview and to someone, have someone ask a question and then the person just not really answer it, just say other stuff. I get really annoyed. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. why don't you just answer the question? Even if you're like, I know that this is a, this is a, I don't know. It just seems like really odd. Like they just seem to say this kind of rehearsed answer that's something else. And you're like, mm. just answer the question. Just answer it. Just have some balls. Or just, I don't know. It just seems like they literally are so worried about every single soundbite. I, mean, I don't know why you're so worried. Look at what all of your mates have gotten away with. Look what you've gotten away mm -hmm. with. Like Boris Johnson and that Jennifer Curie person. And they're having parties during lockdown and whatever. And, you know, mm. I was looking at some figures like Boris Johnson in the last year made like over a million pounds and like from different kind of avenue streams. These guys are just they're raking it in. Where are mm. the consequences really? And so mm. what is the what is the big deal? You say, yeah, I do use private stuff. What's going to happen to you? You're still going to be prime. You're still going to be like one of the richest <laughs> person, people in the UK. Like, why is it? That, why do you have to? It must be so uncomfortable for them. Like sitting there and being like, we're speaking English to one another, but they're saying some stuff regardless of what they say. I'm just going to say my own thing. Like how to have the temerity to like, to have a conversation. How can you like sit opposite someone and just be like, I'm just going <laughs> to say this other stuff. I don't know. It's weird. It's I know. Could you imagine them being on a game show? There's, this is the million dollar question and you will be a millionaire if you do answer this question and then ask the question. They just start answering all the other stuff. Like, other stuff the game like, shows, what? I'm sorry, but what are you talking about? I've yeah, asked a very actually. straightforward question. And, but you know what? Like I do relate to it on some level that when I was doing, allegedly when I was doing my consultant interview, they did right. surprise me with a question that I did not expect. And I must have just garbled on about something completely different. I can't remember what <laughs> right. I was talking about. And you could just see they were like, oh, great. He doesn't have an answer for this. But uh, I was lucky that we're well, not lucky, but uh, there's no one else applying. So what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shoe yeah, in. Go and ruin that. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so, so there are a few other kind of topics this week to go over some of the I feel like there are some really difficult accounts out there, as mm. in accounts as in sto like stories about what's going on. We were saying mm. weren't we, beforehand that this is really depressing and how much of this do we need to count over to go over for people? Because I must say that like it, it is depressing to see it on Twitter and it is quite I find Oh, there was a tweet from, oh my God, Aoife Abbey, who was saying, so it took me all of Christmas break to pick my brain up off the floor and just go for a run. Now I'm back at work tomorrow and unsurprisingly info coming at me via the various WhatsApp groups, social media, news, and what I just know suggests another darkness is looming. How are people managing this? And like social media, just being exposed to it and stuff does amplify it. It's quite depressing. Like how are you, do you find it depressing actually? Yeah, big time. I think one thing that really got me, I just started trying to, I'm not trying to put another tweet together with this whole rhetoric is that I think Shela Imtiaz Umar, she tweeted, anti-GP violence, abuse and aggression continues unabated. This is our waiting room at Wilson, Wilson, was it Wilson Saint Surgery? Yesterday after a patient trashed it, negative media narrative, anti-GP rhetoric, unrelenting demand and unrealistic expectations leads to this level of violence. Where will it end? And 
it's, it's that kind of thing that does get you worried, doesn't it? That there was a time when you'd probably be quite proud to say that you are a doctor and you work in the NHS. But now you've almost started to feel like maybe I don't want to say that just in case someone punches me in the face or something. Because is this the level of violence that can happen? We're talking about extremes, but all you need is one extreme thing to happen to you and then you're injured, you're hurt. <clears throat> and so this is, it is very tough to see, see what could happen to people and the level of danger that this kind of rhetoric can have to people who can't see the bigger picture. Because sometimes all you do is get this is good and this is bad. And then people, they'll believe it. So we're jokingly saying that the a lot of the papers will be talking about, oh, extremists in here and extremists there resulting in these strikes. But some people are going to genuinely read that and believe it. And then they're going to think that, well, you know what? I'm going to take action. I'm going to do something about it. Yeah. There was a really good thread from Peter Neville, which I think summed it up. So it's at Pete Neville 65. And he goes, for those who don't understand what is up with the NHS, here's a thread for you that might help. I'm a consultant physician working as a doctor in the NHS in Yorkshire Wales for 32 years now. I've ex experienced the NHS at its best 2008. That's pretty much when we were starting, so I feel like that's <laughs> a bad omen. And it's worst 2022. Because over the last 15 years, we've seen a relentless increase in demand, both in primary and care. And in hospital care, this has been absolutely predictable by social statisticians for decades. And it's based on the fact our elderly are surviving much longer. Our elderly use a very large percentage of NHS resources, unsurprisingly because they're more prone to disease, frailty and dementia. They need more social care and hospital care as they get older, and they are living longer. Immigrants, by the way, use much less care. Over this period, NHS funding has, broadly speaking, risen over 1-2% to over inflation. If NHS funding increases with inflation yet demand increases, then clearly spend per person will drop. Demand has increased considerably above 2%, which is why the NHS is failing to manage it. Secondly, the NHS is not responsible for social or community care. When elderly folk come into hospital, they decondition very quickly and require physio and OTs to get back on their feet. Often a care package is required, sometimes even a care home place. This is the responsibility of the local council to sort out, but council funding has been cut and social workers are dealing with huge caseloads, so there are big delays. And we can't send the patients safely home until their care package is sorted out. So they wait, and they sit on hospital beds waiting, often bored and frustrated. About 33% of hospital beds are fit, filled with fit-for-discharge patients. UK hospitals can do nothing about this. We are effectively working on 66% capacity, which is one of the reasons that a &E is rammed. So what do I do when my emergency take ward rounds? I'm seeing patients in chairs and corridors, back of ambulances. There's little privacy and dignity is impaired. We all do our best, but it's a poor environment. And this has been much worse over the last five years. No respecting doctor, self-respecting doctor or nurse enjoys working in this environment. No care worker likes to deliver poor care. Salaries were frozen for seven years of austerity and have never caught up since. Doctors and nurses now leave university with large debts to pay. One of the biggest perks of the job was the NHS pension. In 2015, this was rearranged to save money and ensure people have to work longer. It was not done well, and this has led to some facing bizarrely massive tax bills. Five-figure sums are common. If the pension is no longer an incentive to re remain working in the NHS, the medical and nursing staff can leave the NHS and do agency work. It pays a much higher rate, and you can work as much or as little as you want. It gives you control back, very attractive for parents. So lots of folk are leaving the NHS to do agency or locum work. Once this happens, we have a tipping point. There are lots of vacancies in the NHS that have to be filled by agency nurses who cost much more to employ. There are agency fees as well. Those of us are left working in jobs with constant colleague absences, so we must work harder, often covering extra shifts at short notice because we have to. And there's a moral pressure to cover on-call gaps because the service cannot be allowed to collapse. We're all so tired. And then it goes on. So the, these tweets are from January the 2nd. Definitely re I recommend taking in the thread because it's just a 
comprehensive and thoughtful kind of account of what the situation is. Mm. There's lots to it, isn't there? And the, I think one of the problems that we have trying to convey the issues with the NHS is that unfortunately the answer is really complicated. Like when I find that when you look at like talking heads, like conservative voters or whatever, they're like, oh, like the NHS is a money pit. And I find, and like a really, there isn't like a really simple answer to how to deal with that other than there are lots of important reasons why I think that the NHS should be properly funded, right? You have a, if you have a well-funded healthcare system, then you have a kind of well workforce, less people taking off time, taking time off work to care for kind of sick relatives. There are lots of things, but if they're not simple answers, right? And I think that's one of the issues. This may be a bit of an odd thing for me to say, because obviously I half jokingly be follow the money, Imran kind of thing, but... Hmm. At some point, you have to be a bit like, what's the point on any of this? What's, what's the point, point on any of the No, as in uh, getting more power or getting more money if you can't be healthy. Like, oh, yeah. That's actually more important than anything, regardless sure. of like how much time off work and stuff like that. And then, and the thing is, like when you look at other countries, where you've got these countries, I think it's like Norway or something, maybe someone can correct me, but they've got big, they've got big invest, investment funds. I think they made a lot of money from oil and they've been investing quite heavily into different industries. But... Because of that, like the entire population has got a minimum amount of money that they're entitled to and they get like a minimum amount of money to look after themselves and they're, they're quite well looked after. And when you look at countries like the Middle East, for example, like when you look at the Emiratis and what kind of things they're entitled to because of Emirati, it's, a, it's just incredible. They get like free healthcare, funeral paid for, schooling, all that stuff is just paid for by mm -hmm. the state. And it just makes you think to yourself like, okay, Fine, it may cost a lot of money. Fine, I don't know. Maybe the NHS is a money pit. But when you talk about people's lives and like just general happiness and being being healthy, that should really mean more than anything, shouldn't it? Really, I've said this before on on other podcasts and stuff as well. Like where at some point you've got to try and make a decision to look after your own health because if you don't look after your own health and you start worrying about everyone else and all that kind of stuff, you're putting yourself into some really difficult places. You really need to be there, and you know when there's no one else who will look after yourself more than you, really. And, and it's a shame that we, I know that there's all this funding and stuff, but then just generally speaking, the healthcare of the entire population should be the utmost importance, not nothing else, not, nothing else really, regardless of, if it costs a lot, it costs a lot. That's what it is, fine, whatever, that's what you've got to do. But unfortunately, I just think that a lot of people or the entire population is quite distracted by things that are far more entertaining than worrying about 500 deaths a week, lack of healthcare, ambulances that are not getting to people because it only matters when it matters does that make yeah. sense it only suddenly becomes a problem when it affects you directly otherwise you're too busy watching i don't know cristiano ronaldo going to saudi and complaining about what's he doing with his life making 200 was he making 200 million a year 200 million a year is what he's going to be pulling in and then that's becomes the big conversation when actually it should be bigger topics like this no yeah yeah, I think I think someone jokingly said something about that's part of the bigger thing. They keep you entertained for as long as possible. So while bigger decisions like this are happening in the background, but you're too busy watching a football being kicked around. I just think that, look, I think for a doctor's point of view, like if no one else is going to stand up for it, it should be us. And obviously we don't know what the, like, don't 100% know what's going to happen. But one would hope we do go through with these strikes and are very, very focused on what we're asking for. Not asking for, not even asking for anything, demanding anything. But then through this is what we were saying earlier. What happens next? What happens next? We strike and then what? Strike again and then what? I heard recently wasn't with the train strike. 
they come back down and they're, they're like, okay, we'll go back and we'll go into talks. And I think it'll make a difference. I think it will. I think it will. But you're saying if I it really doesn't. So. Yeah. yeah. I think it will make a difference. It has to. If it doesn't, what happens to the profession? Bank. That's what you, everyone goes on bank, bank. straight away. <laughs> yeah. Problem is, I think for trainees, I think it's difficult, isn't it? And um, I was saying to you before, there are like rotor gaps and stuff that aren't being filled. And I think the amount of the situation in the NHS, regardless of our pay is bad. Even if you took the pay out of it, like the situation with, with the just the number of patients and stuff, there are the amount of burnout and people taking time, being off sick and all that stuff is just crazy. There's so many rotor gaps and stuff. And you're saying like, what does it take for people to change careers? I think we are, I think from more junior colleagues, they certainly are like talking the talk about leaving the profession in a way that I don't remember doing when I found things hard as a much more junior trainee. I can only go on what they're saying, which is essentially that they're going to just take their talent and go into other careers, whether it's pharmaceuticals or just going to another country or going to different careers altogether. So where does it go if we if the strikes don't achieve our goals? A depressing, that'd be pretty depressing. I don't have a kind of very positive answer. I think it's just... I think Shivani came out with a really good tweet, which I think does relate to this. And she says that she was discussing with a good friend and a colleague. It makes a lot of sense. She's sharing it. Medical school applications are designed to favor high achievers, type A personality types, people with perfectionist traits, high standards. And then it... Oh God, you know what? I don't relate to any of these. Am I a type A personality? Maybe I am. Anyway... Yeah, I don't think I'm a perfectionist. I don't think I've got particularly high standards. Anyway, fine. In a way that perpetuates these traits, highlighting the need for attenuate attention to detail, hypervigilance, the consequence of misdiagnosis, etc., without building any resili resilience, how to deal with uncertainty, etc. And then you graduate and parachute into clinical environment with the standards you strive for, the standards that make you feel like you've done a good job for the patient, the role that gives you satisfaction you crave are simply unachievable. They're often unachievable in my junior doc years. Every weekend, yeah, fine. They're left with low moods and like you had done a bad job, yeah. Anyway, so the point is like she is talking about how we, and so this is a very good tweet. I encourage anyone to read it. It was December mm. the 30th by Sh Shivani Misra. And she's basically talking about the kind of caliber of people that we bring into this job. And then the kind of, yeah, as if you get, let's say, use my, this is probably extreme, like you get like someone who's really good at football and then put them through the academy and then you get it, you take them out and give them the worst football, uh, like football boots and like a flat football. <laughs> Go for it. Score yeah, the goals. Yeah, yeah. Do it. Yeah, and you yeah. go, why is they, why are they not scoring the goals? They're, I've trained them for so long. I made them the best they could be. I'm not saying like you're the best that you could be, but certainly like on paper, the kind of caliber of people that are coming in, you're a very gifted bunch having worked with some of you guys. But then in that, I would say, and something to touch on something earlier, is that I do wonder about our own personalities, like how much of, like if you're to, make a percentage of your personality, how much of that personality is being a doctor? Because if yeah. it's a huge, let's say 80% of your personality, then yes, I understand why leaving the job may be a really big deal. But I do wonder whether that may be an unhealthy thing to be as a part of such a big per, a part of your personality. Because if you are as clever and all that, you have got yeah. some serious skills, mate. Time to go. No? The way I like to see it and the way to figure out like how much of a person's personality is if you go to their Twitter mm. bio and you see what they start with. <laughs> so let's go to... Oh, don't start. Mine's Doc Lasker. So three-second <laughs> 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 So 
So Drushka <laughs> won that, and it starts as cardiologist. And then oh, it goes start go. about Dr. Lillian Erin. Mm. So first I put I cardiologist, I then I put <laughs> and then I put dad, <laughs> and then I put husband yeah. third, and I put BMJ Media intern. <laughs> What's in my last character? Let's do that one. <laughs> mine is mine is not even my account, sir. It's a what would you call it? radiologist. <laughs> and you've even got the two like Yeah. So it's what does that say account. about us? What does that it say, does about say that. Us, But I've said this before, like as soon as if Ray Dodge didn't give me the things I want in terms of lifestyle and stuff, I'm out. I'm done. I just, yeah. It just doesn't bother me. I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. What, I just, serious? I, I don't know. Seriously, I probably, I would look in, I've got a few friends in pharmaceuticals. One of them, one of them we used to go to uni with actually. I'd definitely talk to him. Otherwise I'd start to do, do what I'm always doing, like starting businesses Teaching. or something. But yeah, do something like that. I'll probably start a business, another business, yeah, try yeah. something like that. Or just become an influencer. I'm already there. Yeah, that's true. Do more TikToks. <laughs> I'm joking. TikTok, yeah, do more TikToks. But I, I just think that if for whatever reason I had to leave, I don't think it'd be that big a deal. But then maybe that's the stage I'm at because I finished. Maybe that's why. Yeah. Is that why I'm more comfortable to leave? Do you think because you made it and, and it's harder? you could have made it? And so then you're like... No, but I'm saying like, is it easier to leave at the end than it is to leave in the middle? I've yeah, done maybe. that at ST2, ST1. Well, I left. kind of stuck with feeling like a failure or something. Yeah, like I, I've got, if you leave at ST2, you can't even go to another country and be like, hey man, I'm an ST2, you've got to start all over again. Oh, I see. But if you go leave at this stage and go somewhere else, then you're going in as a consultant. So it's slightly easier to do things. Or even if you went jump industry, you go in as a consultant. So they'll be like, okay, you clearly know what you but They assume you clearly know what you're talking about. They assume you know what you're talking about. And therefore, you must be good at what you do. And then they pay you accordingly. I don't know, maybe that makes it easier. Maybe that does make it easier. But I'm just saying that we should be, af like, if things don't go well, some of you genuinely, like speaking to some of you guys doing taking referrals stuff, you guys are so smart. You must feel like, are you wasted doing this? Like maybe you'd be happier doing something else. <laughs> yeah. Go get rich, go do something else. I don't know. Yeah, fair it's, enough. It's a compliment in a way, I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I feel mm. like we have to talk about Andrew Tate because that was so hilarious. Yeah, okay. Stuff. <laughs> what so, do you want to say about Andrew Tate? What go do I want then. to say? So basically, on. Tate, free Tate, gone. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> he went after Greta Thunberg, and you know, if you come at the king, <laughs> you best not miss. And so, like, randomly, like, completely unprovoked, he, like, added her, basically, like, mm. talking about all the cars that he had or whatever. And I just think it's really, I think it's hilarious. I thought it was hilarious that she came back with, oh, you can forward your, because he was talking about how he'd like forward all the details of his, it just seemed like a really random thing to do. Like, so he, he did like, cars and how much like exhaust, basically implying that you've got so many cars, emissions. take that environment. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It? And yeah. it's like me saying, oh, I really love me. Let me find like someone who's written like a vegan handbook and stuff and send them like my meal plan for like last week or something. It's just like really uncalled for, really random. And he's obviously doing it for some clout. And then she just replied with essentially like the kind of social media version of saying your mum, which is mm. just send it to this email, which is like small dick energy, right? And mm. I think, I mean, it's not actually that super funny a reply. And there are some people who are like, oh, it's a bit toxic to talk about small willies and whatever. And I'm like, this is this guy who's like randomly decided to joke about something that's obviously it. really important to her and to, to lots and lots of people just because, for clout. And so she's just mm. come back at something that obviously is going to be quite important to someone whose whole shtick is about being a man and masculinity and stuff. And <laughs> coming, literally going for the small dick thing is just almost chef's kiss, like beautiful. Anyway, but the thing is, the thing that kind of really got me about this and just made, just gave me so much joy is that it's this subsequent replies because it, it, it takes me back to boys' school. And when like someone just gets taken down with one comment, 
And mm. then there's the crowd justice, like where, not crowd justice, but like where that person tries to come back from it and nobody's letting you come back from it. Nobody's, <laughs> they're like, no, that's not good enough to come back from mm. this Nordic thing. And so for example, there was, he did this like video where he's like in this bathrobe and he shows his nipple briefly and he's, I don't know, trying to make it like funny in a different way, like implying that the small dick thing was a reference to hit her. And it's, that was a kind of, I know you are, but what am I type reply. Mm. And then someone replied to that video going, I know where you should send an email on this topic. And it was just like, oh, <laughs> and it just kept coming. And so then yeah. I went to see, the, and he's just gone on private. It says it's limited. Oh, is it? It's gone. I didn't oh, know that. Gone, okay. But the so. thing about Tate, I think like, he is such a massive, like, he appeals to a very certain demographic of people, especially with some of the kind of quite out there things he says. And I think for those people, regardless of what Greta Thunberg replies, they'll always support whatever he says. And she might come with a smart reply, but his supporters will be like, I'm still, I'm still on Tate's side. Yeah, I just sure. don't think this guy is all about, he's playing the social media game to another level that mm. no one's ever seen before. And I can't help but this is very calculated and like, I'm yeah. sure like, I'm sure we all see that he got done on the reply, but his supporters will not. And it looks like there's two point something million of them. Yeah. Actually, I, I do follow him because he's quite funny, but not, but the thing is like, they are so many people that will support whatever he says, whatever he does, he'll go after anyone and they'll just go for it. It doesn't matter, but it just uh, gives him and him going for a girl that is pro environment. There's a whole load of his cohort that are like anti, from what I understand, anti all of those things. They love it. They're going to, it's just playing up to his crowd, no? Yeah. I, the thing is, though, I think that the type of people that do go for it, I think is a kind of disillusion. Like, I picture in my head, I don't know about you, but I picture a kind mm. of youngish, angry, incel white dude. And mm. in my head, I picture them being the kind of dudes of the, they're dangerous. They're the ones that go and like shoot mm. up schools and stuff. And mm. so I find it scary. And like, he's literally, like when people have asked him, he's, yeah, I absolutely am a sexist. I absolutely am a misogynist. These are like actual quotes. Like, and it's not, it's like a dangerous enough world for a woman to be in. You've got these mm. kind of like angry kind of 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds who are like watching this stuff and kind of a lot of the incel stuff is about, it acts like they are owed, you know, What's like the owed sex and stuff essentially and so i just worry about so there and then the discourse went off didn't it there was jess phillips the mp who was like oh, i've like purposely don't know anything about him and so then there was this mm. whole thing about can you just ignore people like them are they if you just ignore them will they go away but as you say there are going to be people who listen to that stuff so mm. then and like, how seriously do you take what he's saying? The other people who are potentially dangerous are going to be taking it seriously. But I guess, look, okay, he's kind of come off socials and he's been arrested for some alleged crimes and whatever and stuff. Maybe if calm is a you, thing, then... But... I think this is an interesting topic in general, and I don't know why. Sometimes, you know, the algorithm hits you with something and you think, why am I interested in this? I'm not interested in this. And then you start watching and say, yeah, algorithm, you got me this time. So I don't know if you know about Logan Paul. Have you seen what's been going on with him recently? No. All oh, right, so there's a guy called Coffeezilla and does these like long kind of form documentary, investigative documentary things. So he did a expose kind of thing, which is really quite fun to watch. I did a three part thing going to Logan Paul because Logan Paul was pushing some sort of cryptocurrency called CryptoZoo and pushed to push and loads of his followers to put loads of money to the cryptocurrency. Right. Suddenly went quiet. 
and it's been oh, like no a year just... and nothing's going on, right? right? Yeah, and so basically, but this is not the first time stuff like this happened. There was something else he's done. There was something called Doink, Doink Coin or something like that. He pushed and pushed and suddenly, so he's been pumping these coins and then it looks like in the background, he's just been like keeping loads of money. But the thing is, on this one, what was really hilarious because he got caught out clearly for attempting to try and do another pump and dump scheme which is apparently quite a common thing amongst a lot of influencers to try and get money out of their followers. And then he replies to Coffeezilla with a long video calling Coffeezilla a liar, but not really denying anything. And then goes on a podcast and rabbits on about how he's the victim, even though he didn't make any money, even though it looks like he pretty much tried to take lots of money. Did you see the Wait, so is and Logan Paul not the guy who keeps challenging people to boxing? Yeah, his brother is as well. No, his brother mainly. So he's got Logan Paul and what's the other guy? His brother's name. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. So the, the little brother fought... thinks he's a boxer. Oh, that's his brother. Okay, fine. Yeah, but then know. but then Logan Paul did fight fight Floyd Mayweather. He I thought they were the same the person. They're just like No, they're brother they're brothers. But then the thing about this was like the reason why I bring it up is because Logan Paul has got such a loyal fan base that even though he's as far as we can tell, he's Correct, tried maybe. to scam his followers at least twice now on cryptocurrency scams, yeah. Still... And had another one. He's still got that following. He's still yeah. got people buying into him. And he's done his big apology video. And you just know that of the 20-something million subscribers on his YouTube channel, the vast majority will probably hang around, even though so many of them got completely done out of thousands yeah. and thousands of dollars. And it just makes you wonder what kind of world we're living in where there is literally no comeuppance. And, the, and like the memory of people is so short. Yeah. These they guys... can just get away with it. Do you reckon mm. now these people are taking the place of, you still get them, like the TV evangelicals, but the evangelical people of like previous, gener like the boomers generation, they had those people, the people mm. who would be in churches stirring people up and then say, I'll perform this miracle or I'll do this miracle, you're just going <laughs> to give me this money. I remember seeing there was this like video of this TV evangelical guy going, coronavirus, I will blow you away. And he's like, all this noise, mm. like he's going to get rid of coronavirus. And the coronavirus is still there. And, but I just wonder now, because obviously the kind of, younger generation perhaps are a bit more skeptical about religion but perhaps like the people who would otherwise have gone along with those idiots have gone with these people mm. instead and then but then like so they have always existed but like in different forms and it makes you wonder you're, you're completely right and in fact believe it or not years ago before pierce morgan was a pierce morgan that we now know he he was he used to do the newspaper he used to be an editor of a newspaper and i think yeah, he yeah. did a documentary on the idea of fame and i remember watching i didn't know who pierce morgan was at the time but his whole thing was actually very interesting because he was talking about how with the, in the absence of religion, where exactly what you're saying, the idea of heaven and hell, the ideas of like priests and stuff telling you what to do and not do is now gone because people don't really believe in that stuff. anymore. So the closest to heaven or hell that you can get in this world right now is to be rich and famous. So when you've got people who are rich and famous, they take up all your interests. You actually have groups of people who are so evangelical about the rich and famous person that they follow that they identify as like, as Loganers, I identify as a Tatey or Tate, whatever. And so their identity is actually rela relating to the famous person. And they end up becoming almost an organized religion yeah. on their own. And this is the issue that I personally feel in that we, what happens is that there's another, there's a Black Mirror episode, I think episode number one. In fact, episode one, series one. And the idea was that like, if you pedal along long enough, you might end up going to this, you're pedaling and trying to make money. And then if you pedal enough, you make enough money to go on to what looks like a X Factor style show. And then yeah. you show whether you're good. And if you're good, then you end up becoming super famous and out of the whole tread running on the treadmill. Yeah. And I thought it was a really good episode because 
I felt as though what's happening is that you're being sold the dream that you may become rich and famous one day, possibly. If you keep trundling along, you may become rich and famous. And so when you've got someone like Logan Paul who becomes rich and famous, they're living the dream that a lot of young children would like to live. And by looking up to him and aspiring to him, you're giving him the life that he has. So yeah. he's giving you that dream that I'm just a normal guy. I was a normal guy. I was just making YouTube videos and now I'm living this. And because he's shown that dream to so many people, they buy into that and start basically enabling him to live an even more extreme life. Mm. And I think the same thing with Tate in that he will keep talking about how he's going to pull you out the matrix, pull you out the matrix, look at me, I'm out the yeah, matrix. And by doing matrix, that, yeah. he's funding himself to be even further away. So this guy's not poor. At last I looked, he's 310 million pounds. If that's true, I don't know. But he's going to be very rich, whether it's hundreds of millions or not. Yeah. And uh, so 50 Cent, I think recently, he got done because he went to court over doing something and it turned out he wasn't as rich as he claimed he was. And so his valuation went down from hundreds of millions to like in the tens of millions. But the point was, what he was doing was getting gold necklaces and stuff and melting them down and making a new gold necklace and pretending he was buying new ones. Start. And a lot of the stuff was rented, bought or leased out and things like that. He wasn't as rich as he claimed he was. And that's the point. This stuff perpetuates itself. Like the more yeah. flamboyant and rich that you show, the more flamboyant and rich you become. And that's the thing with Logan Paul's and his brother and all these things. They're showing you, oh, you could become a boxer too. You could fight Floyd Mayweather too. And by doing that, they make themselves become richer and richer. Yeah. But sorry, the one last thing about this is that what's so amazing about Logan Paul and watching what happened with him, because I got really into it for some reason, that he was completely unable to see how he messed people over and was completely showing himself, trying to, he was convinced himself that he was completely innocent. And only recently, over the last day or two, he's come out and finally apologized. But what made him apologize was the public backlash. He must have noticed I that his really... Twitter was getting annihilated. His right. YouTube comments were getting annihilated. And so that's what makes you realize that maybe social media is something that you should really be in when, yeah, force for good, but also you worry about the mental health of people that are so pushed by their public opinion, like what people are really thinking of them. Like they're watching these comments and it affects their life. It affects their life. It really does. It'll affect yeah. their day, it'll affect their behavior. Because if he didn't get the negative comments, he would have done nothing. He would have just carried on. Yeah. Because of the negative comments, he might be thinking, oh, I need to save my thing. I don't want to be cancelled. And now he's coming out with apologies. He's going to say he's going to do things right. I think, anyway, I find the whole thing so fascinating really and a bit worrying. Yeah, a bit worrying do, as well. I guess one of the yeah. reasons why I find it particularly, why I find the whole kind of disc the discourse on it, I think I take it personally is because of the whole notion of masculinity and i think partly because mm. i know that i've my entire life like i've never really fit in with kind of the kind of traditional ideas i guess of what's masculine like i don't have a particularly deep voice and i kind of liked girlier stuff and, and i guess that kind of macho chat that i just see more of now always makes me feel a little bit like answer i don't know what the word is but i kind of put this video in that i think that i thought was really cool as a so mm. there's a tiktok from neil shiminsky and mm. he basically was talking about how i think you hear a lot in the kind of public discourse in general about like millennials so when you get called snowflakes mm. i felt like that mm. was a kind of more generalized perpetuation of this toxic masculinity thing which is basically about being sensitive or being the whole idea about being a snowflake is the implication is that you're somehow like fragile but i think it was a mm. kind of backlash to hearing people's feelings and the, the kind of embracing lgbtq plus population just the how our generations the subsequent generations are have been much more are being more sensitive to different things so like the mm. language and the, the way that we speak and then the kind of these 
very kind of macho influences are almost like a backlash to that and then there's this whole discourse as to whether this is like a new thing and so this so this professor he mm. talks about how people have talked about the loss of masculinity since the time of Hippocrates like Hippocrates is mm. talking about it and then he's showing like newspaper articles from like the 1800s where they're talking about how speaking in public public speaking is like a feminine quality and like all these things that we just would think is funny now they were used as examples in the past as like the loss of masculinity, like what is masculinity? And his one of his points is that the idea, like the idea of kind of sexuality and masculinity changes. It's all, it's like a it's, it depends on, it's a reflection of society. And someone else was pointing out to me not long ago about how the color pink was generally thought to be like a boy's color in the kind of war generation. Whereas now like the idea of a man liking pink is thought of or portrayed as like a feminine a characteristic. And he used this really great example of like how or why generations do that. Why they go, oh, back in my day, men were men, men were... Though, yeah, one of my kind of... Mm. One of the things I see so much of like the gammon generation is where they do pictures of like men in like Normandy. And that's men from then. And, that, and then they have a picture of a dude now. And it'll be like with a fancy haircut and like it's twos. Like, that's a man now. They get painted, whereas then they were going and dying or something. And that's better. That's more mm. manly. And he used this kind of like baseball example, which I thought was really cool. He said that like people say that, or like people say with like football, or like football was best at this time. Like for my generation, a lot of people say that R9, the, original, the Brazilian Ronaldo is the best Ronaldo ever. Whereas mm. like people from this generation will be like Messi, Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, they're the best ever. And people from the generation before that might be like George Best or Pele or Maradona. And then he says, people will do that. And it's interesting. And when you look back, Often people will look to, they will look at their heroes when they were like 12, 13, 14. And that's roughly the age at which you start to question your heroes. You question your parents, you realize that you're kind of like your father, your parent figures were fallible and you start to see their flaws. Mm. And before that, before 9, 10, 11, your heroes are just like perfect. You don't really consider them as a person. You just, and mm. so beyond that though, you start to consider their flaws. And so therefore, as you get older, you look at people more critically and they can never live up to that kind of like 10 year old's perspective. And when you put mm. it that way, you're actually like, oh, this is just a natural kind of like cycle of life. And maybe I shouldn't be like shouting at kids and stuff and new things because yeah i mean it's interesting because it came up in that yeah i think we stuck in that or you stuck in this tweet about his uh, was it his tinder profile oh, yeah. there's a tinder yeah profile. yeah it's a dude a dude dating is so easy for me just pick one of hundreds of nice guys trademark on the app what's on the app gavin so gavin who's 18 years old this app fuels the female egotistical narcissistic nature by giving them the selfie culture and buffet of i'm not going to say that to choose from this in turn transfers most of you women into picky beep with beep attitudes. Some of you on here have nothing to offer but your depreciating looks and pre-owned beeps. If you're on this, swipe right. If you're on this, swipe right. Uh, if you're not on this, swipe right. And the thing is, first off, he, the kid's eight, he's 18. Okay, so he's 18. And I just think that this is what I was trying to like, get into with Logan Paul on some level. And that people are growing up on these apps and growing up on social media. And they're too heavily influenced by the comments of other people. And I just worry about like, maybe just not be, yeah, like you, you, mate, don't be saying stuff. Like, you're going to feel differently in about a year to two years time. Like it, you're going to say all this stuff. I've heard people say stuff like this, but they never feel like that later on, especially yeah. when they actually finally meet someone nice and things are going great. But they'd be like embarrassed to saying stuff like this. Don't put stuff like this out there. It'll go back and haunt you. And that's why I think that sometimes, man, but then again, 
this 18 year old guy is the kind of person he's looking up to, to be able to say stuff sure. like that, no? But like, he doesn't know it. And he's emboldened by that. Yeah, sure. Saying, yeah. But it's just interesting to think when my daughter's 18 and like sharing a classroom or whatever, like with this person who beeped it out, but he was talking about women with pre-owned vaginas. Like what a way to talk about them. Like, like a, complete objects. objects. And so with that level of kind of, like to dehumanize them in that way, we know that kind of language, it gives you an idea of like their thought process and how they regard them. And then it just makes you think, oh, this guy's, he's a danger, isn't he? Like that kind of attitude. He's a danger. Yeah. Um, but, but clearly encouraged by what seems to be quite a large cohort of people out there at the moment. Yeah. I don't know what it's being fueled by. It's interesting. Not interesting. Scary, maybe. Yeah. And there's a good reply to it that says, give my regards to the rat prince. And that's what they called him. I think that was based on his profile picture. I can't say. Maybe. Oh, ouch. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. Splinter, Splinter King or whatever it was from that Turtles <laughs> TV show back in the day. <laughs> sorry, go, moving on back into medicine. Sorry, there was some. There was one tweet that hit me. Again, money. What does it cost a junior doctor to complete the exams needed to become a consultant? Medical specialties, 2,227. Surgical specialties, 3,529. GP, 1,546. Pediatrics, 2,023. Ob obs and gobs, 1,609. Radiology, 1,343. What? We're the cheapest. Wow. Okay. Emergency medicine, 1,925. Psychiatry, 1,579. I bet you I was probably multiples of that because I failed so many times. But anyway, yeah, moving on. Expensive business, isn't expensive, it? Expensive, isn't it? So it's most yeah. expensive to do surgery. Then yeah. after that, it's medicine. Then pediatrics. Then obviously... Then no, then emergency medicine. Then uh, yeah, I balk because I'm like, you guys should be making, you should be making emergency medicine and GP. You should be paying them to do those exams. You should be, <laughs> you need them. You need them so bad. Yeah, so you you should so not be. Look, you're like charging someone to do A and E, nearly two K to do that. You're charging them for the privilege of sending them into a meat grinder. <laughs> Got to say, surgical. I did not know surgical specialties cost that much. 3,529. I think right. it's because it's crazy, isn't it? That's because they have to do like a surgical skills course, a closing up course. They probably have to do like. But my point is, I, I did not know it cost that much. And so you're telling me to do surgery, it not only costs you money, like actual money, it also costs you so much time. Yeah, but the number of mates true. I've had who stuck around late to do a surgical thing or yeah. turn up on the weekend where they're not meant to be because some sort of procedures happen. Like, you just lost time and now and it money. seems you're losing money too? Yeah, wow. Yeah, I'm sorry. Respect. You can't sell that to me. <laughs> There's never going to happen. I was like, yeah. no way. No way. Yeah. Why on earth would you do that? I rate so, anyone that does. Well, speaking of no really way. Like it. No yeah. way. So like Anna Mitchell, she was talking about job plans, right? Were you quoting and... that band, aren't you? What was it called? Vinland? No way, no way. Do you remember that? Phenomenal. Yeah, I don't worry yeah, about that. Yeah, that's also, it. That's Anna the Mitchell. one. You do yeah, know it. You joker. Pretending you didn't. Well, yeah, you're not all Lincoln Park. I liked Girls Aloud. What are you about? It's, Mate, uh, I went to Girls Aloud in concert. There you go. Right there. Yeah. I Who's, your Who's your favourite? Come on, man. It was always going to be Cheryl. Was it? Yeah, at the time. I was, yeah. Oh, RIP, man. Sarah Harding, isn't it? Yeah, oh. she was my favourite. Yeah, gosh. Really? Yeah. Anyway, so Anna Mitchell, endocrinologist, nice person. Mm, she mm. was talking, though, about... It was a response to Bella Rossetti, who had talked about mm. how difficult it was to get time with consultants to supervise you doing procedures so she quote 
quoted a post from Junior Doctors UK that said, What skills are SHOs being taught? I'm seriously starting to worry about the de-skilling of SHO grade doctors now. Not that it's their fault at all, but I may be just being unreasonable in my expectations. I've repeatedly found IMT2 grades not being able to do lumbar, punch, lumbar punctures, acidic taps, removing drains, and bleeding, removing central lines. Bleeding, removing central lines, and removing drains sound... Oh my gosh, that's crazy, like... Just taking them out by taking blood out of lines, Jesus. I had to do a vascath mm. removal for a, a non-resident on call reg as none of his genius could do it. Is this the shape of training now? I'm really sorry if it is. This is not your fault and I fully hate it. And then people were talking about Anna Mitchell. She'd said in our job plans, there isn't really any kind of time that's set aside for like training. So if I do, that's going to be time out of this unpaid. I'll be doing my work later in the evening. And mm. it was interesting because then people would be like coming back with saying it's the future of the profession. You need to be doing that for the sake of the future of the profession, which is fun. Because often those are the same kind of people who are saying when junior doctors are staying late to do stuff, they should be paid more to do that. And it's just mm. interesting. I thought the kind of the it is interesting when you're like a senior reg, you'd yeah. hang around to help out and teach and stuff, all this kind of thing. But something does happen when you're a consultant, and I don't know whether it's encouraged by the environment that you're in or maybe just the environment that I've seen so far, mm. is that suddenly consultant time feels like very precious time. It suddenly feels precious or the way they make you feel it to be precious because I've seen the situation where... SPM yeah, it time. is. Genuinely. I'm not joking. They'll be like, oh, we need to do more checking of this. And they'll be like, okay, but where's that my job plan? That, that's the, that'll be the first thing they'll say. Where is that my job plan? If it's not my job plan, I'm not doing it. And I'm not saying... Uh, I'm saying I've seen it a lot. I've seen that a lot in multiple places where the argument for not doing something is because it's not in the job plan. If you want me to do it, then let's put it in the job plan. So something must happen at some point where at some point when you're a reg and become a consultant, you start to view time differently or the, how much time you're giving into things, I think. And because you can see it here, the person's talking about that we're not given time in our job plan to do it from the hospital's point of view. They're not interested in that. They want consultants to do consultant work, which is to do, I don't know, clinics and surgeries, and report scans. Like it doesn't help them for you to go off and teach people. They want to do that work. So the only people who are going to pay you to do any teaching is going to be the Health Education England or like the colleges and stuff. It's going to be Health Education England. But even then, like it's not as though there's money flying around. So you're not going to really get that much back for it. And there's only so many sessions that can go around to all the consultants. You'll find that. Maybe one consultant might have allocated time to do teaching, and so therefore they'll turn up and do it. But then everyone else is doing out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it at all. And I don't know what happens, like why that suddenly shifts. Because it's a shame, isn't it? You're like, you're like you're saying, you are you are talking about the future of the profession, but there'll be a fair few people out there saying, it's not my job to do that. If you pay me to do it, then I'll go do it. Or if I'm interested in doing it, then I'll do it. Yeah. But if I'm not, and I'm not getting paid for it, then why am I doing it? That's the kind of arguments I could imagine or and have seen come about when it comes to this and it's just i think it is a sad state of affairs that there's not more emphasis put on but also the valuation of everyone's time yeah like enough. everyone's time because you're talking about trainees as well right we just talked about surgeons coming in after work to do more surgery and on weekends to do more surgery it's not, that's them valuing their i don't know are they it's two different ways to look at it they're valuing their own time so much that they're willing to put in their own time to go do it but it's also not valuing their time enough to go do something for free because that's what they're doing they're devaluing themselves by doing that it did make me level. think though like when i was looking at that and the talk of job plans and how it mm. never really seemed to be something i'd really thought much about 
And I don't know if that's something you have to get like a crash course in when you're applying. For no, I'll tell you now. I'll tell you now exactly how it works. I'll tell you in five minutes. Oh, wait. Okay. Um, yeah. I have a few <laughs> questions. So let me give you yeah, some of the on. answers I got so far. So I said, okay. what do you, so where do you all look for guidance on what a good job plan is? And is there anything mm. in it that's specifically for training, like for being an educational supervisor? And one of the replies I got was a standard full-time substantive tends to be 7.5 DCC, which I thought was okay. that direct clinical care. Yes. And then yeah. direct clinical contact. And then she said, yeah. and and he said, and 2.5 SPA, which is what special? Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what that is in a minute. Yeah. Okay. What does that really mean? And so do you get, when they say 7.5, do they mean that's 7.5 units? Of something and that is how much okay money. no it's not your consultant salaries according to whatever the consultant salaries on the nhs website based on a 10 session job 10 session job takes up an entire week which basically means that each session is a half a day right so two sessions make so one session is nine till let's say one yeah. and the next session is one till five so that's two sessions in a day and so what's actually happening is that you've got as a consultant you've got two two types of work quotation marks right there's one where it's direct clinical care so I guess for me, in direct clinical care would be when I'm doing ultrasound, when I'm doing MRI reporting, when I'm doing acute, urgent reporting, stuff like that. Right. And then you've got time baked into your job plan where you're meant to be doing admin work because there's so much admin being a consultant. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> and so so that, so basically what you're saying is that your average job plan would be seven sessions. So that's what, how many, what, three and a half days worth of actually being around, yeah. doing work, clinical work, being on the ward round, seeing patients, clinical work, surgeries, whatever it is. And the other bit is for you to you know, make up for meetings, MDTs, personal training, like not personal training, like going to the gym, but like, yeah. personal <laughs> like training that you've got to do, personal development and stuff. Yeah. Now, allegedly, the SBA time is may or may not be spent doing that. It may or may, may be spent doing so whatever then, things you may be interested in. Yeah. Yes. I've got follow-up questions. So then, yeah, do on. you get people who yes. have job plans, which is like nine DCC and one SPA? Mate, you get, yeah, you get, no, no, so the, you want to get, you want to have your standard amount of SPA time. So you don't want to be getting less than anyone else, unless you really care about doing lots and lots of DCC, which is right. direct clinical care. So generally speaking, what some people do will increase their job plan to be like 11 session, 12 session, 13 session. I've seen 14 session job plans. And I'll explain how they do that in the end. Yeah, go on. Oh, yeah. go on. So, four, no, so 14, but that would mean... So how does that work in terms of the hours then? Yeah. Exactly. So then you are allowed, it depends on the trust, but you can put up to three sessions in a day. You can do, depending on what time of the day you start. So you may start at 7 a.m. in the morning, and that's two hours until nine. Then you do nine till one, that's another session. Then one till five, and then you could do another two hours in the evening, so five till seven. Yeah. So what you'll notice is that there'll be some consultants who come in and do three sessions on the Monday, three sessions on the Tuesday, and maybe they'll just do the session so they end up getting a Friday off. Because all you've got to do is make sure you get 10 sessions in that week. doesn't matter how you do it. Just get your 10 sessions in the week. It, and I think you can generally do like a maximum of three in a day. You can't really go beyond that because then you're looking at doing a 20, like 12 hour a day. And then what about your on calls and stuff like that? So that's why you will notice why some consultants aren't always around. Because they've done their job plans so that they've got more hours put in on some days than others. And some consultants are doing 10 session jobs. Some people are doing five session jobs, depending on how much they really want to work, mm. like how much do they really want to do. And that becomes a negotiation between you and your clinical director and your yeah. department. So when you're going for a job, it will say something like, this is a 10 session job plus on call or something. Yeah. So then you go and you discuss to them like, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. So does someone yeah. with a 14 
yeah 14 what's the word 14 session P- yeah session job yeah yeah then well they get paid 1.4 times by a person who's done a 10 session job yes i see and okay yeah so there's a few ways of making money right if you like okay so a few ways of making money so either you do a 10 session job and then you do a whole load of extra work as in extra lists right Right. fine you go do that the other way to do it is by increasing the number of sessions that you do so it'd be 12 pa job a 13 pa job 14 pa job and the 14 pa job or 12 pa job may not necessarily be direct clinical care it may be what you're talking about education supervisor role so let's say you've got 10 10 session job and you take an education supervisor role and you've got two trainees, that gives you a 0.25 session or something, right. which means that you get a little bit more money at the end of the year. But then people will take management roles, MDT leads. I don't know, whatever, when you see like all the labels that someone's yeah, got yeah, yeah. at the end of the name, they're this lead, they're that lead, they're this lead. They're usually getting time back for that. So even though they've got a 10 session job on paper, as in they're turning up to work the same number of times anyone else's, they've got these other roles that will give them more time back and therefore more money at the end. I'm not saying their motivation for doing those extra things is money, but I'm just saying that they are compensated for the extra things that they do. For example, with educated supervisor role that I have, I get 0.25, which means that it's well within everyone's right for me to do teaching every single week, isn't it? Because they're paying for me to do teaching every week, mm. stuff like that. Fine. But then again, it's like compensation of the time that you're putting in. And how do you, yeah, it does. Mm. So like, how do you negotiate that when you're getting a job? So like when you apply for a job, do they say mm. this job will be 12 SPAs mm. done and that's it. There's no leeway on it or whatever. Or is that like a negotiation? Where does that happen? So, does that happen after the interview, before the interview, during the interview? Like, When you're applying to the job, it usually will say this is a 10 session job. So next time you look, you will see it'd be like 10 session job. This is what this is going to be, right? Now, obviously there can be circumstances where you come into the job and you've got childcare or something, then you're entitled to say, look, I can't do this. I'm going to have to reduce my time. And in those situations, there's nothing. They have to do that. They have to reduce your time, whatever helps you look after your life. But if you don't have commitments like that, then it does become a negotiation at some point that you might say, you know what, this is not really working for me. I'm having to travel in a lot. Can I make an eight session job? And you will have to accept that you will take a bit of a pay cut. Now, I don't know if you remember, a while ago, we were talking to each other about consulting jobs and why someone would persist to be in the NHS, even though they've got such a booming private practice. Yeah. And how is that even possible? So the reason we, I said on that time, and this may or may not be true, but you can make your own decisions. But usually you'll see that the big shot people are still in the NHS, maybe for half session, like half a day or a day. And they're doing that, I think, personally, because it helps them with revalidation and mm. yearly, yearly appraisals and stuff, right? But then they've clearly got so much private practice that over the years, as they've become more and more senior, they've negotiated again and again to reduce the number of sessions that they're doing so that they can go off and do their private practice. And so now they can go off on a Monday. Because you can't have a session that you're employed in the NHS and go do private work. You'll get completely ruined. And there's no that's just a dishonest thing, just fraud. But you can reduce the number of hours you're doing to make, let's say, 8PA job so you have Monday off so you can go do your private practice. Or you can make, so you've got an 8PA job, but then you couple in three, a three-session job on Wednesday, Thursday, and you've got Tuesday off as well, yeah. which means that you can do private practice on Monday, Tuesday. So it just depends on the balance of how much NHS pay you want versus private practice, if that's what you're into. Yeah. Or if you just want to make money through, private, through NHS, how many sessions you can pick up, be it through DCI, direct clinical care, or through various other 
roles that seem to pop up, college lead, radio, whatever, yeah. So say if you decide, you mentioned the childcare example, so say if you go into mm. a consultant job and it was offered at 10 and then you decide, oh, actually, mm. and then you're like, oh, I don't want to do like this private work here and childcare there, so I want to reduce it from 10 to 6 P- PAs or whatever. Who is it that you go and speak to change that? And how do you, how often do you change it? Well, you can change as many times as you want. It just depends. That's the thing, like, it's... The thing is, it is difficult as a new consultant to walk in and suddenly drop your job plan without having like a decent explanation for it. It's very difficult. They'll be like, hang on, we just employed you. We employed you on a 10 PA job. What's going on? You can't suddenly just drop your sessions. So generally speaking, people work for at least five years before they start trying to negotiate their job plan, depending on what they want to do. But obviously, like I said before, if it's a childcare thing, then you can't, you just have, you have to. If you've taken a 10 PA job and you realize it's not working or something's happened, like you've got to care for your parents or something, then you're entitled to dry, drop your sessions. Mm. But then the cost is that you make less. You'll make less. Because if you go from a 10PA job to a 5PA job, you make half the amount of money that you used to. But that may be something that works for you, which is fine. There is a lot of flexibility when you're trainee. Mm. I remember when I first went in and I was getting the consultant job, I think someone mentioned, like, which days do you want to work? And I thought, what do you mean? I thought I work every day. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I thought that's what people do. But then it turned out, no, there are, you can put your job plan so that you don't have to come in every single day you work longer days on some days than others or maybe even come in on the weekend or something hmm. and so there's a fair bit of flexibility there and i think i've pretty much given all the advice that anyone would require you don't need to go on a course for that now i've done it yeah, yeah well thanks done. mate i appreciate it <laughs> i hope that was useful just for some people out there i sent it a lot that was good cool cool all right, okay. So should we just finish on some festivals? Or yeah, was there something it. else? Yeah, do you want yeah. to read the first one? Okay, let's go for this one. I think this one I quite liked, actually. My amazing wife took me away from... I think it's because... Oh, man. Okay, okay. I was about to say so far away, but it's not. Okay, so mm-hmm. I'm going to be 40 this year, everyone. My amazing wife took me away from my 40th birthday. The holiday house was amazing. I am looking forward to some peace and relaxation, I assume. I walked into the room, next room, and my entire family was there. Instead of being delighted, I very audibly said, for beep's sake. Could when you not I relate to this, that? I was like, I can actually, <laughs> yeah, totally. And when I saw it, I like read it out to Joe, and I was like, I could so see this being me, especially if it were my in-laws being there, I'd be like, brilliant. But what would you do? Would you actually say it? Would you be just like, keep quiet, walk out, and just scream into the pillow? I could, yeah, I don't know. Can you imagine? But I could feel like, I, I almost felt like in that tweet, I felt that person's joy at where they were, like the place of joy, and then suddenly to have them like snatched away. And I could feel like in that moment, a sudden change, <laughs> like being dunked into an ice cold bath. Yeah, yeah. It could, be, it could maybe utter, utter a swear word or two. Um, <laughs> and this other the festival pay. one is yeah. whilst fighting, one of my children broke a window. 20 years later, they still haven't confessed who did it. They don't know. I have a video from a security camera and I'm pulling it, revealing it at a perpetrator's wedding. That's a nice one. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love it. Love I think. It. I think mm. sometimes when I put stuff on Twitter about the children, like how much of it, how much of it is going to still be around when they're adults, to be fair, who'd even look back this far, but stuff to keep back and embarrass them with when they're older. I wonder, can you think of anything that you might keep in the kind of banks for this? When know? they did something. No, um, I can't think of anything right now. The thing is, at this point in time, they, I think my son, he's, I don't know, he's got to this age where he's funny. You just say right. the word poo is funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's about poo all the time, all the time. Poo is quite and one funny. day I was a little bit like, I, one day the other day, I, no, one day I said to him, he, he said it again. And I said, what did you say? And I think because I changed the tone of my voice, he went, cuckoo. Oh. I said, cuckoo. I said, no, you didn't. He goes, I did say cuckoo, dad. Yeah, I did say cuckoo. And I was like, all right, fine, whatever. It's a little hot. At least you're trying to get out of it. It's fine. It's all good. 
I've cool. got a kind of recording of. Do you remember what I told you, didn't I? Like Lil singing when the Thought died, which is a song. Oh, God. Yeah, that's hilarious. And being yeah, dead. Yeah. And I think I'm going to keep that. I feel like that's going to come back. That's going to come back in a big way to embarrass her. I feel like that'll be. <laughs> Play it at a wedding day, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, well hopefully our relationship one. will be better by then. And I'll be like, but it wasn't always this good. I'll throw back to this. I'll cool. tell you something. The other day I was playing with my kids. And then I was just trying to be like, let's do something quickly. So I said, okay, we've got five minutes to build a house. And I said, what for? Out of the pillows. And I was like, I don't know. There's a big storm coming. We're going to build this house. We've got to get <laughs> safe, right. right? So I quickly, quickly build this house and you can hear the timer going. And then it was literally about to run out of time. So I shoved my son in and then I got my daughter and put her in and I put the lid on. And then my daughter goes, what about you? I said, don't worry about me. And she ran out to give me a hug. I said, no, I'm not leaving you behind. And then oh, the alarm went so off cute. and the storm would come. And I thought, That's quite my son didn't care. He's like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. You guys just go for it. The storm's come. You guys are done. I'm alright. He's already making. He's already making plans. So what we're gonna do with this space? What we're gonna do with that space over there? Like interior design. Yeah. I just looked at him. Thought. I just looked at him. Thought. Okay. At least I know. At least I know. Fine. Cool. All right, man. I'll speak later this week then, yeah? All cool. right, yeah. Thanks for All listening. Right. Everyone have a great week. Yeah. Speak to you guys soon. Vote. Shut the vote. All right, bye. Do it, do it. Let's do it. Bye.